Hello, squad. Welcome to Crime Squad Podcast with me, your host, Natasha. Here we are, season two, episode 11 of Crime Squad Podcast. I want to truly thank all of you who have listened, followed, subscribed, rated, liked. Every little bit of interest helps the podcast reach a broader audience. And if you're new here, welcome. Today's case features an Indigenous woman who went missing. As many of us should know by now, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is a real issue in Canadian society. That being said, I want to stop for a moment and address anyone who may need support. If you know, if you or someone you know is in need of immediate danger or need urgent medical support, contact 911. Wellness Together Canada is another resource which can be accessed online at wellnesstogether.ca or by phone. The phone number for adults to contact is 1-866-585-0445 or you can text 741-741 for access to a mental health professional 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. For First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples who require crisis support around missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQA plus people, contact 1-844-413-6649. Don't suffer in silence. Know that there are resources available and access them if needed. In Indigenous culture and tradition, women are sacred beings. Due to harmful stereotypes and systemic racism, Indigenous women, girls, those within the 2SLGBTQA community have been publicly devalued and ignored. These individuals are five times more likely to experience violence than any other population in Canada, and this violence tends to result in more serious harm. The reason behind these horrible statistics was revealed when the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was published. The verdict? Persistent and deliberate human and Indigenous rights violations and abuse are the root cause behind Canada's staggering rates of violence against Indigenous women, girls, and individuals who belong to the 2S LGBTQA plus community. Have you heard of the Moosehide campaign? If not, check it out. The website is moosehidecampaign.ca. The campaign itself is an Indigenous-led grassroots campaign started on the Highway of Tears about 10 years ago. Since then, it has grown to a nationwide movement to engage men and boys in ending violence against um, women and children. The campaign itself is actually grounded in Indigenous ceremony and traditional ways of learning and healing. A big part of this is the Moosehide Pin, And by wearing the pin, you signify your commitment to honor, respect, and protect the women and children in your life, and speak out against gender-based and domestic violence. I actually have a collection of these pins in my possession, and I will be offering you the opportunity to grab them for yourself. Be sure to join my Instagram at Crime Squad Pod so you can stay up to date and uh, get your hands on one of those pins. It's my mission to ensure Indigenous women and children who experience violence are not forgotten and to shine the light on these victims and the crimes against them. As such, I will continue to create content related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls on a regular basis, and I encourage you to send me a direct message if you have a case you want me to cover. 
This episode features the story of Simone Samara Ann Sanderson from Ochichak Co. CP First Nation. Okay, squad, let's get into today's case. On August 2nd, 1989, life would be forever altered for Jacqueline Sanderson and Christopher Taylor. In Brandon, Manitoba, they would welcome their beautiful little girl. They would name her Simone Samara Ann Sanderson. Simone would grow up in the Ochichatko CP First Nation Reserve Treaty No. 2 territory. This territory is the traditional homelands of the Dakota Anishinaabek, Oji Cree, Cree, Dene, and Metis people. These peoples are respected stewards of the land and vital contributors to society. Simone would grow to be many things a sister, an auntie, a wonderful daughter, and eventually a mother as well. Growing up, Simone had this way of brightening a whole room with her smile. She was a positive thinker and had so many creative talents. Simone would express her feelings through many different artistic outlets. Not only was she a very attractive young woman, but her inner beauty radiated outward. She was known to have a heart filled with love to give, and she showed this love by caring for numerous, fam numerous family members. In pictures of Simone, I see a stunning girl with long, dark, shiny hair. She has a heart-shaped face, large brown eyes, and what looks like a little cleft on her chin. She has a lot of character in her face. Many of the pictures of her I found, she's sporting the classic duck face pose and selfies, but no doubt about it, she was a beautiful girl. Not a lot is known about Simone's early life, but according to an article in the Winnipeg Free Press in 2013, Simone's grandfather, Oliver Sanderson, had taken in Simone as an infant and he and his wife raised her. Simone enjoyed being crafty and creative. In fact, she decorated the entire interior of Grandmother Betty Ann's home. She loved to paint and design things, and she clearly had a knack for it. In addition to enjoying being creative indoors, Simone really enjoyed outdoor activities as well, such as gardening, fishing, and camping. When Simone was 21 years old, she would become pregnant and give birth to her son, Nigel Jr. Moore. She loved being a mother, and her grandmother, Betty Ann Sanderson, was quick to praise Simone's loving parenting style. Simone truly loved her son, and despite a difficult relationship with his father, she always tried to do right by him. Unfortunately, in May of 2012, after a dispute with the father of her child, little Nigel was put into the care of his paternal grandparents after intervention by Child and Family Services, or CFS for short. This was something Simone desperately wanted to reverse, and she was trying to get back on a different path so that one day she could be reunited with her son. Due to the involvement of CFS, Simone was required to participate in numerous programs and also complete a month's stay at a detox center. Simone did everything she was asked to do, but was still facing barriers by CFS. As a parent myself, I can only imagine what this must feel like. And according to Betty Ann, Simone was completely heartbroken every day she was away from her little boy. 
In completing the research for this case, I am so struck by the amount of trauma that has surrounded this family. The Sanderson family has lost so many family members over the years. Uncles, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunties, nieces, all stolen too soon. It was suggested that some of Simone's struggles, in part, were due to the loss of her uncle, who passed unexpectedly. Many family members began to notice Simone seemed to be in a downward spiral, starting in the spring of 2012. Again, problems in Simone's personal life were suggested to be the reason why she was making choices that didn't align with who she was as a person. During Simone's struggles with CFS to obtain custody of her son, Nigel, she became very disheartened. She moved into Winnipeg's North End, away from the reserve, and it was here that she, she became involved in a relationship with a new boyfriend. She began staying at his place on a regular basis, and as Simone became enmeshed in this new life, her existing family members began to hear from her less and less. Simone began to make choices, such as abusing drugs and alcohol. I want to step in here for a second and check the bias that I'm sure many of you unconsciously have against people who live a high-risk lifestyle as determined by drug and or alcohol use or who may or may not work within the sex trade. These people are not less than you. They are not deserving of the stigmas and judgments passed to them by people who have never been in that particular situation. Drug and alcohol abuse can affect anyone, no matter their age, race, color, creed, gender, circumstances. Nobody sets out to be someone who abuses drugs or alcohol. It's something that develops naturally when one begins using. The reasons that a person uses substances vary from person to person, but oftentimes it's a means to numb pain, and many times this pain is derived from a traumatic event. A lot of the time, comments and racist remarks are made against Indigenous groups. In discussing true crime cases with people, I've heard comments like, it figures they were drunk, or yeah, it makes sense she wound up dead, she was a whore working on the streets. I don't want to make this story about me, but I'm a person who is in recovery and I've been sober for 10 years. Survival mode is a different animal when you're addicted to substances. Some make it out and some don't. But a high-risk lifestyle doesn't mean you deserve to be abused, killed, or otherwise treated poorly. Back to Simone's story. Her grandfather, Oliver Sanderson, was quoted as saying about Simone, quote, She took comfort in drugs and going out a lot. Too much. She took comfort in things she shouldn't have. She was on welfare, but was planning to go to school and go to AA meetings. But we stopped hearing from her. End quote. This was just before Simone's family reported her missing on August 30th. 23-year-old Simone was 4 foot 9 inches tall, weighing 100 pounds, and was last seen in the West Broadway area of Winnipeg on August 26th around 5 p.m. Some reports say she was last seen wearing a black shirt with lace on the back, black pants with a white stripe down one leg, brown flip-flops, and carrying a black purse. Other reports say she was wearing a pink skirt and black sports bra. When police put out the brief, they indicated they were concerned for her well-being and urged the public to come forward if they knew anything. The family remained optimistic. 
After all, Simone had gone quiet for a week in June of 2012, and although the family was worried, Simone did make her way home eventually and told family members not to worry. She was with friends and was always planning on coming back. But something obviously felt different this time, because within four days of not hearing from Simone, she was reported missing. Simone had so many reasons to come home, especially because of the work she'd been putting in to be reunited with her son. On Monday, September 3rd, Simone Gra- Simone's grandmother, Betty Ann, her phone rang. Simone Sanderson had been missing since August 26, 2012. Eight days later, her grandmother's phone rang. On the other end of that phone call was a police officer who notified her grandmother Simone would not be coming home. Remains had been located on September 2nd, but further detail was not provided. Police were tight-lipped about the discovery and indicated they would be in touch within a few days after an autopsy was conducted and Simone's identity was confirmed. What happened to Simone Sanderson? September 2nd, 2012. Christy Donald and her partner are scouring Winnipeg's Burroughs Avenue and Main Street areas for empty bottles and cans to collect for some money. At around 2.20 p.m. in an old car lot, they come across an empty bottle sitting on top of a flattened piece of cardboard. Christy took the bottle and then curiosity got the better of her and she lifted the cardboard. What she found would shock her and prompt a call to police. Under the cardboard was the body of a female face down. The female was wearing a black sports bra and pink skirt. The body had many cuts and bruises, especially on the backs of the legs, and there were many areas that were covered in dried blood. Constable Doug Singleton arrived on scene and right away he noted the body was in advanced stages of decomposition. More officers arrived to comb the area and collect any evidence. One of these officers found a fillet knife located five feet away from the body. The knife contained hair and blood. Reportedly, there was also a large rock nearby that also had blood on it. This was taken into evidence and the remains were transported for autopsy. Burroughs Avenue and Main Street is in the north end of Winnipeg and happens to be a very sketchy area. I know someone who lives in Winnipeg, so I asked her what, the, what that area of the city is like. She said there's a lot of drug use, sex workers, homelessness, and criminal activity that goes on in the north end of Winnipeg, with boroughs and Maine being a large part. According to her, it's a place to stay away from. She lives as far south in Winnipeg as you can be, and recently her vehicle was stolen. It was located a street away from boroughs and Maine, so this should set the stage for you on what kind of neighborhood this could be. If you weren't street smart, you probably wouldn't venture toward the vicinity of that location. Simone was last seen walking in the area on August 26th. What had happened to her between then and the day the body was found? How long had the body been there? Two days later, the body was confirmed as being that of Simone Sanderson. Grief tore through her family and friends, especially her younger sister, Ashley Sanderson. The two were close growing up, being only two years apart. The subsequent investigation went nowhere. 
In fact, members of Simone's family were very upset at how the investigation was being handled. For instance, in 2013, Simone's family had a license plate number of a vehicle she was last seen in, which they provided to police. They felt as though the police were not following up on the lead. And there was more to it than that. No leads came out of the investigation for over a year until police notified Simone's family and the media in December of 2013 that they believed Simone was killed by a man she had solicited via Facebook for sex. Police reported Simone was a sex worker and would regularly use Facebook to communicate with clients. Simone's family angrily denied these claims. They knew Simone had substance abuse issues, but they maintained she wasn't soliciting herself. In fact, her sister Ashley said they shared social media passwords with each other and she had scoured Simone's Facebook messages for any sign of Simone hooking up with men to be paid for sex. She found nothing. Simone's name had been slandered by the police, and as a result, Simone and the horrible fate that befell her was further stigmatized. The autopsy revealed Simone had likely been killed August 26th or 27th, but because the body had been in advanced state of decomposition, it wasn't possible for the autopsy to determine her exact cause of death. Forensic pathologist Charles Littman indicated Simone had died from blunt and sharp force trauma based on injuries she had on her hands, head, and neck. Simone suffered tremendously at the hands of the person who attacked her. Her jaw was broken in two places, and she had a neck fracture that was likely sustained when the jaw injury forced her head back. Littman also said external force was applied to her neck in a secondary violent incident, which broke a bone called the hyoid bone, which is located at the Adam's apple. The cuts on Simone showed she clearly fought for her life and tried to defend herself against the ruthless killer. In fact, her fingers and palms clearly indicated she had tried to grab the knife with both of her hands before she died in an effort to try and protect herself. The weapon found on scene by one of the police officers was a knife that, as I mentioned earlier, was covered in blood and hair. This weapon, a six-inch fillet knife, was consistent with the wounds inflicted on Simone. Family members of Simone were organizing tributes and walks to raise awareness about Simone's homicide. In August of 2015, after being kept in the dark about what happened to Simone in the police investigation, her family hired a private investigator. The private investigator's name is Janie Duncan. Janie set to work dispelling the belief that Simone was a sex worker using social media to solicit clients. Janie scoured the Facebook account and didn't find a single interaction pointing to Simone working as a sex trade worker. It was also brought to the media's attention that Simone, prior to her death, had been pushed into being a police informant after police officers raided her apartment in the spring of 2012 and found crack cocaine. The private investigator, Janie, found evidence to support this information and had the name of three officers Simone had been in contact with, including one in the organized crime unit. The family believed something else was going on, and the police were covering up or maybe protecting one of their own. 
two witnesses had actually come forward to say they saw Simone alive on the afternoon of August 28, 2012. She was observed sitting on the front steps of a home at the corner of Charles Street and Magnus Avenue. The witnesses also reported seeing a well-built, clean-cut man in his 30s arrived in a tan-colored Ford Crown Vic, which Simone got into. They apparently argued, and the witnesses were paying so much attention to this, they ended up writing down the license plate number of the car because the driver was being very aggressive. The witnesses then said that after Simone's body was found, they saw the same vehicle, the Tan Crown Vic, near a street corner close to the scene with the Winnipeg police cruiser. Because the witnesses had noticed the license plate, they were able to validate it was the very same car that Simone had been seen in with the aggressive male. When police interviewed these witnesses, the police advised them that the license plate number actually matched a different vehicle altogether, a blue Chevy Equinox, which is a far cry from a tan Ford Queen Victoria. Crown Victoria, rather, sorry. The witnesses say police asked them if they wanted to change their story, but the witnesses refused to do so. They were holding firm that they had seen Simone on August 28th in a vehicle that was later seen to be alongside a Winnipeg police cruiser after Simone was found deceased. Meanwhile, Simone's aunt, Nikita Campbell, organized a walk to raise awareness about Simone's murder. Posters were created to advertise the event, and Nikita had put her phone number on these posters and encouraged people to contact her if they had any information. Two months after the walk had occurred, Nikita said she got a phone call from a man who wished to remain anonymous, and he said he had information about the homicide. He told Nikita he'd contacted Crime Stoppers already and was concerned the police were not actively investigating his tip. Nikita, who had enough foresight to record this conversation, later went to police and played the conversation for them. Police allegedly did nothing except indicate they were aware of the tip. Almost a year after the walk was organized and the anonymous person came forward with the tip to Crime Stoppers, an arrest was made in Simone's case. The question was, would Simone's family finally get answers? April of 2016, three and a half years after Simone went missing and was found brutally murdered, an arrest was made. Kylan James Ellis, who was 28 at the time of his arrest and lived in Lorette, Manitoba, was charged with second-degree murder. Once he was arrested, police obtained his DNA and were setting things in motion to have it compared against DNA that was left at the crime scene. And who was Kylan Ellis? The family of Simone was not surprised to learn that the tip they received the year prior to his arrest was about Ellis, but they were surprised it took police that long to actually make the arrest. Ellis was charged with second degree murder and Simone's grandmother, Betty Ann, was tireless in her efforts to upkeep the shrine made to Simone and to continue to spread the word about her death. She also canvassed the neighborhood looking for clues that might aid police with their investigation. 
However, Betty Ann also felt police let her and Simone down because of the false labels they applied to Simone by calling her a prostitute and creating a negative image of Simone's life in the media. Betty Ann said, quote, Nobody should have to feel like I do now. For three and a half years, I have called, met, and urged the Winnipeg Police Service to keep looking, to not attach false labels like prostitute and sex trade worker to my granddaughter, end quote. This also came with an urge to police to improve how they deal with families of missing and murdered women. Police, however, were happy an arrest had finally been made. Constable Jason Mickelson of, said the following quote, We worked tirelessly for a long period of time to identify and then ultimately be in a position to hold someone accountable where we could lay charges and we are very proud of that fact. He went on to say that he understands and accepts that people will put the police services under scrutiny, especially in emotionally charged situations. Kylan Ellis was 24 years old when he killed Simone Sanderson. Apparently, Ellis was known to sexually exploit women who he believed worked in the sex trade. This was according to a police officer, Deputy Chief Danny Smith. The other thing we know about Ellis is that he had been diagnosed at a young age with schizophrenia. His father, John, said that Ellis had been prescribed medication in the past, but he was unaware of whether or not his son was still taking medication. Police actually began to focus on Ellis as a person of interest in January of 2014. This was largely because of that tip that came in through Crime Stoppers. A tip that, during the court case, was revealed to have been provided by a former boyfriend of Ellis's mother. Police contacted Ellis in March of 2014, and after investigating tips and other individuals, Ellis became the primary suspect by the summer of 2015. Police actually used an investigation technique where a detective dressed in a police uniform went out in a police cruiser and pulled Ellis over, at which point they installed surveillance devices in his vehicle. Police also installed audio recording probes into the homes of Ellis's father and mother, whom were separated. Hoping to generate conversation, police then called a press conference and released new information about the case to the media. This tactic worked, and an audio recording of a conversation between Ellis and his mother on April 21, 2016, was actually played for the jury during the trial. In the recording, Ellis's mother, Carol, tells her son that she knows what he did and she is trying to protect him. Ellis denied any involvement and the conversation got very heated with both Ellis and Carol yelling and arguing with each other. Ellis never actually admitted his involvement during this recording, which is a focus his defense would use to disprove the meaning behind the recording. Despite Ellis's denial, this directly contradicts a conversation he had with his father, John, in 2014. Ellis told his father that he was out one night and a girl got in his car. She apparently wanted Ellis to drive her somewhere, and Ellis said she stole his keys and threatened him with a knife. He said a pursuit had happened when he tried to get his keys back. He said to his father, quote, I think I may have killed someone, end quote. His father, John, did not want to know anymore, so he refused to listen further. 
he got it in his mind that he couldn't verify if this was reality or not because he wasn't sure if Ellis was having a schizophrenic episode. But in reality, Ellis had actually called his mother in the middle of the night on August 27, 2012, the same day Simone is thought to have been murdered. He told Carol he lost his keys and he needed a ride. She picked him up at a different intersection on Main Street, not far from where Simone's body was later found. Coincidence? I don't think so. What happened that night? At the conclusion of their investigation, police believed Ellis and Simone were strangers. They believed some kind of altercation occurred which escalated into physical violence. This is where Simone sustained the blunt and sharp force trauma that would end up killing her. She fought for her life as evidenced by defense wounds on her hands. However, there was absolutely no DNA evidence linking Ellis to the crime. DNA found at the scene was mixed and too weak to be able to create separate profiles. Also, after a thorough search of Ellis's car when it was eventually located, there were no traces of Simone's DNA. The defense team tried to argue that this meant Ellis could not be definitively linked to the crime. There was evidence presented that linked Ellis to the crime, and this was in the form of video surveillance footage obtained from two different video cameras. Ellis was caught on camera the night Simone was believed to have been killed. Despite no DNA evidence and no video footage of Ellis actually with Simone, as well as no eyewitness testimony linking the two together, Ellis was found guilty of second-degree murder by the jury in the case. Upon sentencing, the judge ruled that there would be no chance for parole for Ellis for 12 years. Simone's family was present in the courtroom, and they wept with relief that someone was finally being held accountable for the terrible crime that took their family member away. The Ellis family cried because they too were now experiencing a loss. The loss of their son, who would be remanded into the custody of a psychiatric center for his crime. While that is difficult, Ellis may actually get out of that psychiatric facility one day, but Simone will forever remain silenced. Her family won't get to hear her laugh or feel her hugs. Her son won't have a mother by his side as he grows into a young man who may one day start his own family. In June of 2022, four years after he was found guilty, Ellis filed an appeal with Manitoba's top courts. His appeal centered around the fact that his mental illness caused him to not understand his arrest, prosecution, or court rules related to timelines for appeal. Ellis believes he is the victim of a wrongful conviction, so he wants the Manitoba Court of Appeal to overlook the 30-day appeal filing window to allow Ellis to appeal four years after the fact. Ellis applied for legal aid to support his appeal, however, he was twice denied by Legal Aid Manitoba. He asked the determination to be reviewed, and it was, by the agency's executive director. The decision was upheld. Ellis has also approached several lawyers and other agencies to take on his case pro bono. These attempts were unsuccessful. One of the main reasons is the timeline. Appealing a case four years after sentencing is a far cry from the 30-day limit. 
Manitoba prosecutors argue that Ellis's request be tossed out without any further review. There is nothing yet released confirming whether or not the appeal was granted. According to a media release, a trial to determine this is, was scheduled for July of 2022. As of now, Ellis is still incarcerated at the psychiatric facility. And as of now, the Sanderson family faces a bittersweet reality. They know who is responsible, but there is truly no closure regarding why Ellis did what he did. So that's going to do it, squad. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are new here and you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of my weekly uploads and be sure to give me a rating if you can. Tune in next week for another episode of Crime Squad Podcast. Be sure to follow my Instagram page at Crime Squad Pod for photos related to the cases I cover and DM me if you have an idea for a case you'd like me to cover. I hope everyone has a safe and happy Easter weekend and remember, stay safe and be kind to each other. Ta-ta for now.